want you to open your Bibles to Luke 14 and go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're working our way through Luke's Gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at verse 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, this is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You may be seated. Father, what challenging verses we encounter this morning as we see Jesus turning and addressing the multitudes that are following him, so, so opposed to what we would expect him to say, I believe, uh, almost um, seeming to push them away and discouraging them from being his disciple is the way that it looks. And so help us to learn um, not just about what Jesus said here, but why he would say this, why when given the opportunity to address all these people that are coming after him, he would engage them in such a way, Lord. And what it means for our relationships with him is we, as we follow him, or for those who would be thinking about um, following him who are not yet saved, who haven't yet committed their lives to Christ, but uh, perhaps would be on the fence about being his disciple, that we would see what he would say to these people who were on the fence and uh, use me as your vessel, Lord. Help me to say only what you know would be best. I think about um, how fortunate I am that you would know who would hear this message, whether this morning or online or in the future, and would be able to, by your Holy Spirit's word, give me the exact words to say, Lord. And I pray that would be the case this morning, and that I wouldn't say more or less than what you have for your people to hear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon, If Anyone Comes After Me. The title is, If Anyone Comes After Me. So, I, I've shared before, most of you probably know, that in college I went through ROTC and then was commissioned on my day of graduation as an officer, uh, an armor officer, a tank officer. And then my military experience allowed me to have some familiarity with military recruiters. I think used car salesmen probably have one of the worst reputations, uh, but military recruiters, at least some of them, would be a close second and I say some because I do think that there are some honest military recruiters or there, or there are some that have plenty of integrity. But then there are some who would struggle with making the military sound a little better than it actually is. Um, military recruiters need to or want to satisfy or they're evaluated based on their ability to fulfill what's called um, commission mission which is to get as many people to sign on that dotted line as possible. That's what their job performance is you know, determined by, how many people sign up. And uh, the more, you know, when you're kind of thinking that my promotion rests on the number of people that I can get to sign on this dotted line, or, and then by extension, if my promotion, then my salary, my livelihood uh, is contingent on how many people I can get to sign on this line, then you can imagine that there would be a strong temptation for military recruiters to do what at times? Yeah, I hear a few answers. You don't want to say lie, perhaps, but lie or, or stretch the truth or make the military sound a little bit better than it actually is. And I looked up a few articles, and here are the top lies that I could find that military recruiters tell people. So number one, there's a great chance that you'll be stationed wherever you want. <laughs> Many people have heard that and then found themselves in some godforsaken part of the world for years. Number two, there's no chance of being sent to a combat zone. Many people have found themselves in combat zones after being told that they wouldn't find themselves there. Third, you'll receive a large signing bonus. Large is a fairly relative word, right? I bet there's plenty of people who've gotten their signing bonus and wouldn't have considered it large. Number four, they don't yell at you in boot camp anymore. And I was actually surprised that this was one of the lies because I've learned, heard that people can take out a stress card. I'm serious, to hand a drill sergeant and say, I'm too stressed, stop, stop yelling at me right now. So, and then number five, you can quit anytime you'd like. You can quit anytime you'd like. So there are horror stories of people who were promised things, uh, signing up under the impression that that's what they've received, and then their careers ended up being considerably different than what the recruiter had promised them. 
And I'm telling you all this because after I became a Christian in my early 20s and I started reading the Gospels and learning not uh, learning what Jesus really was like, so not what I'd heard or been led to believe or had imagined myself that Jesus was like, but really seeing how the Gospels presented him, I recognized that Jesus is actually the opposite of military recruiters in two ways that I can see. First, he's completely honest, right? There's no exaggerating with him. There's no deceitfulness with him. He tells people the truth. But then the second way that I think Jesus is the opposite of a military recruiter is he, he seemed to, at times, try to discourage people from signing up. He almost seemed to want to prevent people from signing on the dotted line. And you did hear me correctly. Because when you look at Jesus' interactions with people, you would almost think that he's trying to turn them away. Have you ever been reading the Gospels and noticed that and thought, this is not what's going to encourage people to be Christ's disciple. This is not what is going to uh, increase the sizes of the masses that are following him. Go ahead and look at verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now, it says great crowds. We're not told exactly how great this crowd, or actually it's plural, crowds, how great these crowds would be. But I'm suspecting that if Jesus could feed thousands and then those thousands could go and tell others, then uh, so there'd be even, you know, if he feeds 5,000 and that's just the, the men and then there's also women and children there, we don't, we don't know how many tens of thousands had followed Christ at times. And so for Scripture to actually tell us that this is a great crowd. I'm guessing we're numbering at least in the thousands, but probably the ten, tens of thousands. And so picture what this looks like, and I want to ask you to think about something. If Jesus was the typical religious leader, whether in his day or in our day, who can turn and see tens of thousands of people following him and hanging on his words, what would you expect him to say? this is incredible. I mean, look at all of these people who are after me. I better make sure what? I don't mess this up. I need to ensure that I do not say something that could turn these people away. I don't want there to be any message from me that wouldn't be what they want to hear. How wonderful what encouraging thing can I say that will cause them to want to continue following me? And not just that, but then go and tell all of their friends so that their friends can follow me as well. Now, this clearly is not what Jesus was thinking, because whenever Jesus had a large crowd following him, it almost seems like he looked and tried to turn it into what? A smaller crowd. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me, I mean, just please, please picture this. Picture tens of thousands of people following after Christ. And he turns and looks at them. And this is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then it gets even worse. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we're not going to be able to dig into these verses too much this morning because we'll start to dig into them in the next sermon. Because this morning, I just wanted to focus on this approach that Jesus would take with the masses and why exactly he would because it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what we could expect. And here's what's going on. Jesus could look at these crowds, and he could tell when they were too bloated. He could tell when they were inflated, and he needed to trim the fat. He could tell when people were following him for the wrong reasons. He could tell when people were after a miracle, whether to have one performed for them or just to see Jesus perform a miracle. He knew when people simply wanted to be healed. He knew when people were curious about what he had to say, not because they wanted to obey, but just wanted to know what was was next with him. He knew that there were people who who came out just because they'd heard things and it was nothing more than mere 
curiosity. And I'm not even saying that these are necessarily bad reasons for people to follow Christ. These aren't even bad reasons that you would pray someone would come to church. It can be wonderful for someone to come to church for curiosity's sake. And then I came to church not to be born again or saved. I came because my brother had died, and I was told that the pastor's brother had died. I was struggling, and someone said, my pastor lost his brother when he was about your age, and if you come and talk to him, he might have something to offer you. But there, there was no expectation that, that I would be born again or that I would go to hell if I died. And so I didn't go because I was curious. I went just because I wanted some counsel and ended up being saved. So these can all be very good reasons for people to be following Christ. But Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew that their commitments were shallow. He knew that the moment that any, of, any amount of sacrifice was involved, then they were going to turn back. So this morning, we're going to look at a few examples of times that Jesus said things that would cause people to turn back from following him so that we don't see that this was just an isolated event. Also, I'm convinced that if Jesus said these things to people in his day that caused people to turn back, and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel writers recorded these things for us to read or for men like me to preach, then this also tells me that it's not a bad thing in our day when people hear these things and what happens. They turn back. Now, it's not to say that we want to turn people away from Christ, but it is to say that there is an amount of value or we can recognize that it's God's will for the wheat and chaff to be separated at times. Now, we know the the complete separation, whether the wheat and the chaff or the sheep and the goats, will occur on the day of judgment, there's, but there's an amount of separation that's very valuable for the church. It, it, it is a wonderful thing when God does some of this, um, you know, trimming of the fat, you might say, in the church at large today. And that can happen when we see the way that Jesus would preach to his disciples through Bible teachers or, or pastors like me. And so, Let's look at the first thing that caused Jesus. This is not the first time that Jesus said things that caused people to turn back. This brings us to lesson one. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, and then he basically said they must, lesson one, sacrifice. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, they must, lesson one, sacrifice. We'll dig into these verses a little more in the next sermon, but you can tell that if you were to summarize what's required in one word in those verses 26 and 27, it is sacrifice. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I cannot think of anything that would have sounded worse to Jesus's followers than what he said. Do do you think if given an amount of time, you could come up with something that would have sounded harder for these people to hear than what Jesus said to them? Hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, your own life, and then when you think it can't get any worse, he says what? Just in case there might be a few people still hanging on. Pick up your cross, which is to tell people, be willing to die an excruciating death if you want to follow me. And so if you wanted people to stop following you, this is what you would say to them. If you're trying to get people to turn back and leave you alone, this is how you speak. Because what could do the trick better than this? This, this is the exact opposite of what we would call prosperity preaching, or this is the exact opposite of health and wealth, or, or name it and claim it. Picture the t- t- typical, excuse me, easy believism American church. And by easy believism, I just mean the preaching that would not expect anyone to expect any sacrifice in their relationship with Christ, or should they repent and put their faith in Christ or surrender their lives to Him, that there would be any sacrifice involved in that, or that the, when I say easy believism, I mean, I mean the preaching that would say that Jesus wants nothing more than to make your life better, or make you happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. So imagine a church like that. The preacher comes to the end of a sermon but instead of saying, you know, 
repeat after me or, or walk down the aisle or, or raise your hand. And I'm not even saying that there wouldn't be circumstances under which that could be reasonable. But a group of people who have regularly heard that following Christ would involve no sacrifice, and then the pastor says this to them, if anyone wants to come after Jesus and doesn't hate his own father and mother and children and brothers and sisters, his own life, he cannot be Jesus's disciple. Whichever of you is not willing to bear your cross and come after Jesus, you can't bear, you can't be his disciple. I mean, how shocking would that be for people who never heard anything like this before? And that's pretty much how it felt for many of the people in Jesus's day when he turned and said this to them. How many people today would respond to an invitation like this? I mean, there's reasons the invitations don't sound like this. How many people would, would raise their hands then? Or how many people would walk down the aisle? Or how many would people would say, I'm gonna, you know, I do want to come forward and I want to repeat this prayer knowing what's going to be involved after I've repeated, after I've repeated these words, after I've prayed this prayer. I know that this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. How many people would say, you know, sign me up for that? Not many is my suspicion. So you say, well, maybe Jesus is just talking to the 12 disciples and not talking to all of us. And there's, there, that's a reasonable question because are there times when Jesus didn't speak to everyone but spoke to specific groups? Yes, there are times he spoke directly to the religious leaders. There are times that he spoke directly to the 12 disciples. And there are times that he spoke to everyone. And this is one of those times when it is made overwhelmingly clear that Jesus is speaking to everyone. Verse 27, he says what? If, if what? If anyone. In verse 28, whoever, at the beginning of, of the verse. Verse 29, at the beginning, for which of you? So it couldn't really be clear that Jesus isn't just addressing all of the crowds that are following him in his day, but he's also addressing all of the people who would read the Gospels in the future. Look at this next example. Turn to Mark 10, so that you can see this as a theme. If you've been in Sunday school with Jameson, you have some familiarity with this account already. Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. We'll go through it quickly, because I want you to see the theme from these accounts versus digging, drilling down deeply into them. Verse 17, he's setting out on his journey, and notice this, this man runs up to him, and picture this, this man kneels before Jesus, and he asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, how, upon first inspection, does this man look to you? What words might you use to describe him? Does he look sincere? He looks sincere to me. He looks zealous. I mean, he runs up to Jesus. He didn't even walk up. He's not on a stroll. He pursues him. He looks humble. What posture does he take? He kneels before him. He clearly has high regard for Christ. He's respectful. He calls him good teacher. He asks one of the most important questions anyone could ever ask. I mean, what question is more important than this? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, which shows his interest in spiritual matters? He believes in God. He wants to go to heaven. And so I would just say there's a lot, spiritually speaking, to like about this man. He doesn't look like one of the religious leaders, or at least the religious leaders who opposed Christ. And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It can almost look like Jesus is saying he's not God. That's not what's happening here. Instead, Jesus is saying, only, you're calling me good and only God is good. And so if you call me good, you must also recognize that I am God. That's the point that he's making. And I think he's also starting to set the rich young ruler up to recognize that there is nobody good, including who? The rich young ruler himself, right? Verse 19 and so Jesus tries to help him see that by saying, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And you can be surprised by Jesus' response here, but the, it's important to notice the question the man asked. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus tells him, that if you are going to do something to inherit eternal life, this is what you must do. 
You must obey God's commandments perfectly. And if you obey God's commandments perfectly, then you have done what's necessary to inherit eternal life. The problem is, what's the problem with that, though? (laughs) Yeah, none of us can do that. So there must be another way for us to inherit eternal life. And I would say it doesn't have to do with us doing something. It has to do with us believing something. Because as soon as it comes down to us doing something or our works, then you know what's going to be involved in that. Sin, right? And we're immediately going to be disqualified. And so he shows them another way. And this brings us to the next part. If anyone comes after me, they must lessen to repent. They must repent, which is what Jesus attempts to bring about in this man's life, repentance. So Jesus presented the commandments to this man to help him see his sinfulness and need for a Savior. And then, incredibly, look what the young ruler said. Verse 20, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Two possibilities here. He is lying or he's prideful. I could be wrong. I don't think he's lying. I think he's sincere. And it's one of the best, I think, so in other words, I think he's proud. And it's one of the best instances in Scripture of the way that pride blinds. He was blind to his sinfulness. His pride had blinded him. I believe he sincerely believed that he had kept the commandments perfectly. So because he doesn't see his sinfulness, and then by extension doesn't see his need for a Savior, Jesus is going to pinpoint the one area of his life that he cannot escape from. Look in verse 21, or something that would make perfectly clear to him that he is a sinner. Jesus looked at him, and he notices he loved him, and Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing, Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, you probably know that this is going to cause that, this man to turn away from Christ. And because of that, you could be tempted to think that Jesus lacks affection for him. Or, or you could be tempted to think that perhaps Jesus doesn't care about this man because he spoke to him in such a way that produced his departure from Christ. But we can see in the verse that Jesus felt how about him. It says he loved him. I mean, to me, it's touching. It is a tender moment where we get to see the heart of Christ for the lost. There's no record of this man coming to salvation later. And so it would be wrong to think that Jesus wouldn't have a heart for someone. And here's what's interesting. This is Jesus's heart for someone that Jesus knows loves Jesus less than he loves his what? His possessions or his wealth. I mean, what kind of slap in the face is that to Christ when Christ looks at this man and it's like Jesus, if he was honest, could say, I know that you love your possessions more than you love me. But Jesus still loves him. And so it's touching, it's tender. In essence, Jesus said to him, if you would come after me, you must repent of your covetousness, which for him would involve giving away, selling his possessions. Now, part of this is prescriptive, and part of it is descriptive. The descript- and what I mean by that is there are many places in Scripture that are descriptive in that they describe what took place, and there are other places in the Scripture that are prescriptive in that they are prescribing or commanding us to do something. And one of the problems we can get into as Christians is reading what's descriptive and thinking it's prescriptive and reading what's prescriptive and thinking it's only descriptive when we're actually being prescribed or commanded to do something. So what's descriptive and prescriptive? I think it's descriptive that he's told to sell all of his possessions. Most of us are not going to be expected to sell all of our possessions. I say most of us because there could be some of us who are so covetous that if God looked at us to repent and follow Christ would involve selling our possessions. What's prescriptive is that just like this man had to repent to follow Christ, it is prescriptive that we must repent if we are to follow Christ. Now, in this man's case, his struggle was with covetousness. What could our struggle be with, or what could your struggle be with? Could be lying, could be anger, could be lust, could be bitterness, but the reality is all of us have struggles, and all of us must be willing to repent of those struggles as we turn to Christ, because you can't walk in two different directions. 
You can't cling to your sin and Christ. Now, it's not to say that we ever become sinless or that we ever, or, or ever stop having any struggles. The longer I've been a Christian, it's almost like the layers of the onion that just keep getting peeled back, and you, you start to feel like you're getting victory in one area of your life, and then what does the Lord do? I'll say graciously, but somewhat frustratingly or painfully, <laughs> kind of reveal the next, the next struggle we're going to deal with. You know, you, it's like, Scott, you made a little progress here, and now there's, we need to go further, and now there's this area of your life, this weakness you have that we need to to deal with. But we must all be willing to repent and turn from those sins to Christ. Nobody can cling to Christ while saying, I will continue being this fornicator or this drunkard or this liar or this, this thief. And it's not to say we won't struggle with those sins, but nobody can want to hold to them and genuinely want to hold to Christ at the same time. And so it's prescriptive that we would have to repent to follow Christ too. But look what happened. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. Now, I want to ask you something. Just look at me for a moment. When this man walked away, do you think Jesus was surprised? Do you think he regretted what he said to him? Do you think Jesus went, oh, I kind of blew that one. You know, I just... I, it was too much. I expected too much of him. You know, I didn't, I didn't really know. I thought he'd value eternal life more than this, and I thought that he would continue following me. I kind of blew this exchange here. There's nothing like that. So here's what's shocking to me. Jesus knew what his words would produce. This man's departure, and what did Jesus still do anyway? He said the same thing. He didn't water it down. He didn't compromise. He didn't dull it. He didn't try to make it a little more palatable. He didn't massage his words and say, well, let's give up some of your stuff. Just a little bit of it. You have so much. In a sense, this is the one... So here's what kind of shocked me as I reflected this week. Jesus said the one thing we would expect him not to say. (laughs) We would expect him not to say what would cause the man to walk away, and that's exactly what Jesus said. He knew what would produce this man's departure, and that's what he nailed him with. And it gets even worse. Verse 23, Jesus looks around to his disciples, and he says, how difficult it'll be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And so you say, well, how's this, how's this worse? How did this get worse? Here's how it got worse. This account is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. And in all three synoptic gospels, they conclude the same, with Jesus turning to his disciples and providing this warning about wealth. And so here's why it's worse to me. Jesus didn't pursue the man. Here's what you might expect. The man walks off, and Jesus chases him, or at least yells after him and tries to talk him into following him. Or Jesus says something like, hey, you know, you're so close. You believe in God. You want eternal life. Do you really want to throw all of this away for your possessions? Please rethink things. Please consider what you're abandoning. Your salvation is at stake here. You could spend eternity in hell. That's what I would say. Or that's what I would expect from Christ, and there's nothing like that. This man walks away, and Jesus sees him depart, and then he turns away from that man. It says he turns from that man to address the disciples who are still there and warns them about the dangers of wealth. Turn to John 6 for the next example. Look at verse 2. John 6, verse 2, it says, A large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the things that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the verse 4, the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing for the second time, he sees a large crowd that is coming toward him. 
So Jesus has all of these people following him. Twice we're told it's a large crowd. This flows from Jesus miraculously feeding the 5,000 who told their friends, who told their friends, who told their friends, to produce this even larger crowd that is following him. But Jesus knew, here's a, I guess here's how I'd say it. He knew they weren't really following him. He knew they weren't really his disciples. And so look at verse 25. They find him on the other side of the sea. And they say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, the miraculous feeding he performed. And so (laughs) it looks like Jesus is saying, you didn't see the signs or the miracles that I performed. Did, you, did they see the signs, or let me say it like this, did they see the miracle or miracles Jesus performed? Yeah, they did. Many of these people had even experienced the miracle themselves because they had eaten. And the others had heard about it. And so they're coming. So then you say, well, if they did see it or seen other miracles Jesus performed, then why would Jesus say that they didn't see the signs? It doesn't seem to make sense unless you understand that every miracle is called a sign because a miracle points to something. Like a sign points to something, it reveals something, right? And so Jesus is, and so Jesus is saying this, you only saw the miracles physically. They were not signs to you because you did not understand them spiritually. So you watch what I did physically, but you did not understand what it was intended to communicate spiritually speaking. And to make it real simple, when Jesus fed the masses physically, which he did at least miraculously on two occasions that we know of, it was a picture of him wanting to do what? Feed us spiritually. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, it was a sign or picture of a spiritual truth or reality, which some people understood and some people didn't. Even with Lazarus. Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Because he's trying to show his victory over death, and the way that Lazarus was raised to life is the way that he can, Christ can raise us to life too. Raising Lazarus for the sake of raising Lazarus was not a big deal, because what happened with Lazarus some years later? He died. It was only meant to reveal what he that what he did physically pictures what he can do eternally and spiritually for us. And so he says to these people, you don't really see the sign. You didn't really understand what I'm doing here. So he tries to redirect them. In verse 27, he says, stop working for the food that perishes. Stop pursuing me for physical reasons. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that is spiritual that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, I will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And so Jesus is saying, don't pursue me for physical reasons just because of your stomach. Pursue me for spiritual reasons or because you want your spiritual appetite satisfied. And so they say, what do we need to do to do the works of God? And so just like the rich young ruler and so many people who don't know Christ, they think that, which is what I thought for 20 years as well, that you go to heaven because of what you do, the works that you perform. And so they say, well, what are the works that we need to perform to go to heaven? And then Jesus says in verse 29, this is the work that you need to do. You need to believe in him, believe in me, whom God the Father has sent. Now skip to verse 41. The Jews grumbled about Jesus. We skipped over the verses where he identifies himself as the true bread that they should be seeking more than the physical bread that they had received earlier. So Jesus said that he's the bread that came down from heaven, and they grumble about this, and they said, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know how does he now say to us, I have come down from heaven? So they're confused. See, here's, here's kind of the, the problem for you to be, to be candid with most of you. You just get familiar with Scripture. 
And so you read it and you're so used to Jesus being the bread of life or the true bread from heaven that the manna in the Old Testament only prefigured or pointed forward to, that when you read or hear that Jesus says he's the bread of life, you're just like, you love it. You're like, he's the bread of life. I live spiritually speaking by consuming him, the bread of life, spiritually speaking. But if you had never read this before and Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what would you say? How does he say he's the bread of life? We know his parents, Joseph and Mary. And they're about to become even more confused because when Jesus identifies himself as bread, everyone knows what to do with bread. What do you do with it? You eat it. And they know that Jesus could not possibly be telling them that they're supposed to eat him. Look at verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're becoming even more confused because it sounds like Jesus is saying to eat his flesh. They're convinced that he can't really be saying that. And he didn't really, or they're convinced he can't really mean that. And he didn't really mean it physically. He meant it spiritually. Christ must be spiritually consumed by us the way that physical bread provides temporary life for us. Christ is the bread of life when consumed provides eternal life for us. And this brings us to lesson three. If anyone comes after me, they must spiritually understand. Anyone who follows Christ must spiritually understand him spiritually understand the truths that he teaches you can see the people's confusion and again the part that's shocking to me i don't know if it's just the teacher in me there is this part of me when i'm watching someone explain something and i think they're they're people are confused there's this part of me that just wants to explain it better i i'm listening to someone explain something and i'm just and I'm, i want them to clarify i can i can tell Someone doesn't understand what the teacher is saying, and I, and I just want to say, no, well, this is what they mean. And so I kind of read this account, and I, it's like, take, I'm like, Jesus, why don't you just explain this differently to them? Why don't you just clarify? Why don't you just say something like, I am not speaking physically. Of course, I do not expect you to eat my flesh. That would be sinful. That cannot be what I am talking about. Instead, look what he says. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I mean, if you think that people were confused earlier or perhaps offended, what do you think they're thinking now? Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, just be honest for a moment. Do you cringe slightly reading these verses? because it's so graphic. Do you cringe just a little bit when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? I mean, the language is so strong and descriptive with no hint whatsoever of Jesus speaking spiritually that you're kind of in the back of your mind thinking, why didn't he just soften this a little bit or clarify some or just add once or twice or 30 times? that he doesn't mean this physically. Keep in mind what has not been instituted yet because the Last Supper hasn't occurred. There's no communion yet. So the people can't, their minds can't go to the elements. Now you read this and your minds go to the bread and the juice. They couldn't do that. They didn't know what those elements meant. Now, some years ago, and maybe some of you have heard this before, do you know what one of the criticisms was of the early Christians? 
that they were cannibals or that Christianity was a cannibalistic religion. And much of that came from these verses in John 6 and the fact that then the disciples of Jesus weekly, every Lord's Day or first day of the week, every Sunday when they gathered to celebrate Christ's resurrection, had a meal where they said that they were doing what? Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so people would hear these rumors and there'd be gossip. And so it's like, stay away from the way. That's what Christianity was called, or stay away from those Christians because they're cannibalistic. Now look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, they turned back and they no longer walked with him. And you've got to recognize that Jesus could have explained this in a less confusing, less offensive, you could even say less grotesque way, but he kept the message the same. He didn't make a mistake. He did not regret any of this. He didn't say something and then later feel bad about it and wish that so many people had not left. And so we have to acknowledge that Jesus said what he said, knowing that it was going to cause people to turn back from coming after him. In fact, I don't think it's too much to say that some of the most difficult sayings of Christ were shared when he was looking at what? The largest mass of people. When it's like he just knew how shallow their commitments were and they had to be trimmed down. And the reason is that Jesus expected his disciples to spiritually understand what he said. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so do you know, do you know what this verse tells us? It tells us that no matter how palatable Jesus had made his teachings, no matter how comfortable or, or how much he had clarified for the unsaved or for the unregenerate person or for the natural man, all of his teachings still would have sounded like what? That's what it says, foolishness or folly. It is only for those people who are believers that can spiritually understand what it is that he's saying. So no matter how he rephrased it or restated it or any other efforts he would have made, they still would have been spiritually blind to understanding the truth. And Jesus, unlike us, he had this ability to know who understood and who didn't. It's like Paul. Paul would go in the synagogues. There's sort of this, these ditches that we can fall into. And one ditch is this. We, we expect God that he is just going to open people's hearts and minds, or he isn't, and it doesn't involve any responsibility on us. That's one ditch. And then the other ditch is this. It's all on us. We are completely responsible with making sure that people understand. And then we become discouraged when they don't or when they seem to reject what we're saying. And the truth is down the middle. We have a responsibility to preach, to share the gospel with others, but at the same time, we are counting on God to do what? Open hearts, provide belief, provide understanding. And that's why throughout Acts, what does it say that Paul did? He would, he would go into the synagogues and he would do what with the people? It says he would reason with them. What does that mean? He, he would go in there and he would explain the scriptures in a way that was very reasonable. You could even say he's trying to talk them in to believing because Paul is just like us. He didn't know who was saved or not. And so he's just sharing the truth of God's word as reasonably or articulately as he can, but then trusting God to provide the faith or belief. Let me conclude with lesson four. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, they must lesson four, take the hard way. And then you can turn to Matthew 7. If anyone comes after me, they must take the hard way and then turn to Matthew 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first 
large crowd that Jesus addressed. We don't know exactly how many people were present, but in the parallel account in Luke's gospel, verse 17 says, Jesus stood on a level place and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon came to him. So if it says a large or a great crowd and a great multitude from all of these places came to Jesus when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, my suspicion is he's dealing with thousands of people again who are sitting before him. It's early in his ministry, and so again, you'd think that many teachers with this sort of audience would not want to offend anyone. Make sure you're saying comfortable things to them. Look at verse 13. He says, "'Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide.'" And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And I suspect we're, most of us, or maybe all of us, are familiar with these verses. The part that I want you to notice is where Jesus said, the way is hard that leads to life. And this isn't what you want to say to people when you want to convince them to continue following you. What you say instead is that the way is going to be easy and comfortable and very pleasant and will not require any sacrifice. But from the very beginning, Jesus is preaching to people just how difficult it is going to be to be one of his disciples. And so something I think we learn here from Christ is we do people a terrible disservice when we fail to let them know that following Christ is going to involve some sacrifice and suffering. Or we do people a terrible disservice when we give them the impression that following Christ is going to mean a carefree and uh, trouble-free life. All that does is it sets people up for disappointment, for discouragement, or it sets them up for confidence in a salvation of theirs that isn't legitimate, and then they end up turning, turning from Christ later when they do suffer because they were told that there wouldn't be any suffering involved and once they did become a Christian. And Paul asks this interesting question in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He basically says, why suffer for Christ? Why don't we just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? He's talking about whether you, he's actually talking about whether the resurrection is true. And when we talk about whether the resurrection is true, that's really to say whether Christ is the Son of God, whether Christianity is true. And so Paul says, if none of this is true, why are we bothering? Why suffer? Why give up anything? Why don't we just live and party and eat and drink and do whatever we want because tomorrow we're going to end up dying and there's nothing after that? And it is a good question to ask, because if following Jesus involves repenting of things that we would otherwise enjoy doing, if it involves embracing difficult truths that are offensive to others, potentially even offensive to us, if following Jesus involves choosing him over other relationships in our lives, even relationships that we might end up losing— when we, or at least are damaged or compromised. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but my suspicion is most of you have had relationships damaged because of your relationship with Christ. That to have a relationship with Christ meant to have a worse relationship with certain people than you would have had if you were not a follower of Christ. So why go through that? Why not just be on the best terms with everyone and act like what everyone does and what everyone says is completely fine and you can let, let what is it, live and let live and if someone wants to believe something, then why, why disagree with them? If following Jesus involves denying ourselves certain things or worst of all, if following Jesus involves picking up our cross, why follow him? And there are a few answers I could give. I mean, one answer is that following Christ is the way to true peace in life. Don't ever envy the wicked. They don't have the peace to enjoy a simple meal with family or with friends. The way the transgressor is hard. True, lasting peace in life only comes from a relationship with Christ. That would be one reason to follow Christ. Following Christ is the only way to be able to count trials as joy. James 1 says, count trials as joy. Why doesn't James say, feel joy when you experience trials? Because you don't feel joy. You have to count or reckon 
that this trial can produce joy in your life because of what God is producing through the trials in your life. So we're told to count the trial as joy, but what's the only way you can do that? When you're a believer who can be confident in God's hand being in that trial and working it out for good in our lives. And there are other answers I could give you, but I'm going to point out just one more, and it's in the middle of verse 14. Matthew 7, 14, the way is hard, but this is the way that leads to life. This is the only way to have forgiveness of sins. This is the only way to have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. This is the only way to have the punishment your sins deserve given to Jesus himself. This is the only way to have someone who says, I will drink the cup of God's wrath that is against you because of what you have done. This is the only way to avoid eternal punishment in hell. This is the only way to enjoy eternity in heaven with the Lord. And because of that, it makes it what? A worthwhile way. Now, all of these wonderful truths should provide the motivation needed to accept Jesus' invitation and, in a sense, swallow these words that he said. This sermon sets up our next sermon. Because when you look at what Jesus says in verse 26 and 27, I mean, if you're honest, you could just throw up your hands and be like, who would do this? I mean, why, why would anyone hate their relatives, pick up their cross, and follow him? For these reasons. Because this is the way of life. This is the way to receive forgiveness. This is the way to be righteous. This is the way to avoid hell. This is the way to receive heaven. It's not the way to have a perfect, carefree life but this is the way to be saved. This is the way to spend eternity with God. I'll be up front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared or I could pray for you in any way, I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you so much for the way of salvation provided through your Son. We recognize that there are difficult truths that Jesus preached. It isn't easy to read those verses or others that we looked at, uh, the verses in Luke 14, 26, 27, or the other verses in Mark 10, uh, or in John 6, or here in 7, 14, just to read that it is, a, it is a hard way, that there's difficulty associated with following Christ. But when we think about salvation being afforded to us no other way, then help us to be willing to embrace those difficult truths that we read in other places. We thank you for Christ and, and this season when so many are uh, more receptive to the gospel, or at least um, even in a false way, celebrating the coming of Christ so that we would have an opportunity to talk to them. And so help us to be more evangelistic. Help us to share the gospel with others. Help us to rightly divide it and say those things that are true and to help people see that this is the way of life, Lord. We thank you for what Christ has done for us and the privilege of celebrating his life when we pray these things in his name. Amen.